Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for being with me. We uh, continue looking at today's big announcement uh, made publicly that yesterday uh, Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco uh, notified House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that she's not to be admitted to Holy Communion in his diocese until she publicly repudiates her support for abortion, uh, repents, receives uh, absolution. With me right now to talk about this, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Uh, Matthew joins us regularly on this program to, to talk over issues that affect church globally. And uh, good to have you back here, Matthew. Thanks. Very good to be with you, especially on a, a, a day like this. Yeah. this is. A, I read the notification last hour, uh, the entirety of it, because I wanted people to actually hear the document, to hear the voice uh, of the pastor in it. And... Um, yeah, there's something there's something creepy about barring somebody from Holy Communion. I mean, it's a, it's a serious, serious matter, especially for somebody who appears to kind of revel in her Catholic identity. I'm curious to see how this is actually going to uh, impact her uh, at an emotional level. I suspect she's not happy, but I don't think... Uh, judging by what we've seen in the past, that we're going to see any public repentance here. I think that's uh, unlikely. We, uh, the Archbishop himself asks, uh, and this is a really important uh, request, I think, is to pray for her. Yeah. Uh, to pray for her conversion on this issue, to pray for her uh, renunciation of abortion, uh, and uh, a lot of other issues. But uh, we also have to remind everyone uh, that abortion, as the bishops themselves have stressed, is an intrinsic evil. Uh, it is similar uh, with euthanasia. It is identical with euthanasia. Uh, the death penalty and other things fall under different categories. So having said that, we can also note that the U.S. bishops stressed and have restressed uh, that this is the preeminent issue of our time. So this isn't uh, something out of left field. This nope. isn't some minor issue that uh, Archbishop Cordiglione is, is focused on or nitpicking. Uh, he is a theologian. He is uh, one of the great canonists uh, or experts in canon law in the United States today. So that uh, is, is very clear in his documents. We can talk a lot more about those. But this was, as you said, uh, as he said, this is not a political decision. This is a pastoral one. Yeah. And he has two things, I think, in in his heart on this. The first is the wholesale confusion and scandal that is being caused uh, among the faithful who are being misled uh, by her support of abortion, given the prominence of her position. But then also there is his genuine pastoral concern, and I believe this, yeah. uh, for the good of her soul. No, I agree. I, I believe that, absolutely believe that. Um, in fact, the, the truth is this was probably not a, bet, a good political moment uh, <laughs> to do this because there's no reason to provoke the other side on this abortion issue. Um, uh, and so uh, I think it was purely pastoral, and it was occasioned by her finally standing up and saying she wanted to codify Roe v. Wade, uh, making it the law of the land legislatively. That seemed to have been the tipping point uh, for him. Yeah, which he notes. I mean, there are three documents uh, that were released today. Uh, the first was the letter from the archbishop to his priests uh, explaining his, all of his reasoning and then from a pastoral standpoint, asking them to do certain things. Then there was his letter to the faithful of the archdiocese. And let's, let's also remember that this is 
for the archdiocese. That is his jurisdiction. That is, he sees that as obviously his great responsibility. And then there's the notification uh, that he sent to Speaker Pelosi. Uh, and in that notification, uh, he specifically cites uh, some of the things that you've just been talking about. Uh, the idea of codifying uh, the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision in federal law following upon passage, he writes, of the Texas Senate Bill 8 last September. So that is why I communicated my concerns to you via a letter. This goes all the way back to April 7th and informed you there that should you not publicly repudiate your advocacy for abortion rights or else refrain from referring to your Catholic faith in public and receiving Holy Communion, I would have no choice but to make a declaration, and then he talks about Canon 915, that you are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So what we're seeing in this notification is he followed everything that the bishops around the world are asked to do. Uh, by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, now dicastery for we're soon to be, uh, the Doctrine of the Faith, to have that dialogue, to have that communication uh, with those politicians who are obdurate uh, in their position on abortion. And so he did everything right pastorally that bishops are asked to do and found himself at this impasse with her right. and in his conscience has no other choice but to do this now. Yeah. Yeah, with her support for codifying Roe v. Wade into law, she made it clear she was not accommodating his reasoning in any way. She was simply going ahead and digging herself in deeper on this problem. And uh, his responsibility as a pastor is to help her not eat and drink judgment on herself when she receives the the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's a a serious, serious matter, and Americans are not accustomed to thinking sacramentally. So to them, this is merely a matter of, oh, she's in the club or she's not in the club, you know? (laughs) All right. They don't catch the the, the metaphysical and the sacramental dimension of this. Well, and and her supporters uh, uh, in the media, the secular mainstream media, but I would expect wholly that uh, many in the progressive Catholic media uh, will rally to her defense. Uh, they will make the argument uh, that this is political, and we can let's talk more about that in a second. Uh, but they'll also misquote Pope Francis um, yep. and and his very famous and appropriate line about uh, the Eucharist being a medicine for the weak, uh, and that how could you possibly deny this? And then we'll probably end up also into the uh, all sorts of efforts to paint him as some sort of a right wing ideologue that this is politically motivated. Uh, and also that, um, well, what support is he going to get from other bishops? And we are starting to see that support uh, come out. Uh, But I think the archbishop at this point, I wouldn't say that he doesn't care, but I think he has to do what he needs to do for his archdiocese and for the faithful who live there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you mentioned there was some response already. Bishop Vasa of Santa Rosa, Bishop Conley of Lincoln... um, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, Aquila in Denver. Uh, I saw there was another one, too. That's yeah, the, I think Bishop Hying. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's uh, Bishop Hying from Madison. Uh, and I suspect there'll be others, too. Oh, I, I think in very short order. In fact, probably uh, when you look back on the history of this, there have been a number of bishops who have already done this on a few that's occasions. That's right. Yep. 
you know, I think of Bishop Paprocki in Springfield, Illinois, back in 2019, uh, that you know, after uh, the state legislature there passed a bill that uh, was intended to vastly expand uh, abortion. He did issue a decree that prohibited several Catholic uh, sort of Illinois legislators, uh, I think the House Speaker and the Senate President, uh, from receiving the Eucharist in the boundaries of his diocese. Yeah. We had a similar situation uh, with Archbishop Nauman. Uh, in Kansas uh, with Kathleen Sibelius, and that goes all the way back to, I think, 2008-2009, with Sibelius, uh, who is notorious for her support for abortion. He found himself in the same place that uh, Archbishop Cordiglione did uh, and really needed to impose this. Uh, But the key there is, again, uh, and, and this is part of one of the points that he's trying to make to his priests, that we can't be thinking of this as some kind of a punishment. Uh, and, and in his letter to the priests, he talks about the fact that the Canon 915 or 915 is not a penal sanction. Uh, it actually has very clear pastoral motives behind it. And we know that because it's not even in the right book of the Code of Canon Law, in this case, Book 6, which is the Church's legislation on penal law, hmm. it's found actually in Book 4 of the Code, uh, which has to do with the sanctifying office of the Church. So two very different parts of the Code, two very different purposes, uh, in, especially in the application of this canon. Well, let me go over a few things that uh, Speaker Pelosi has said. In 2014, she claimed she knew more about... Uh, she said to Bishop... <laughs> Uh, ordered him not to march to support the family. Shared love for their Catholic faith dictates that he can't march in support of real marriage this Thursday. Um, That was, again, spoken against uh, Archbishop Court of Leon. Uh, In 2015, she received an award for saying same-sex marriage is completely in line with Catholic Church teaching. Uh, In May 2021, she said in press conference, I think I can use my own judgment. Uh, This was on receiving Holy Communion. I think I can use my own judgment on that, but I'm pleased with the Vatican put out on that subject. Did you read that? It basically says, don't be divisive on this subject. Uh, You know, these are shots, little shots that are thrown out in public. Back in 2008, she uh, misrepresented the church's teaching on abortion by uh, meet the, on a meet the press interview where she claimed that the early church father's stance on life in the womb were simply not true. She said that, uh, uh, I don't think anybody can tell you when life begins. And that seems to be the position that uh, uh, President Biden has fallen into, too, this, that the complete, we're agnostic on when life begins, <laughs> which well, is, right. is, is ludicrous. Well, I mean, yeah, that uh, I'm glad that you raised that because I think that was um, something of a, an important moment uh, on Meet the Press, as you say, all the way back in 2008, because she deliberately misinterpreted, misquoted and misapplied uh, the teachings of St. Augustine. Yeah. And we had President Joe Biden uh, deliberately misapplying. Uh, I'm assuming deliberately. I mean, I'm not sure what his understanding is of Aquinas. Uh, on pretty much the same issue as to when life begins, about conception and other things. And it is that just throwing out these names of doctors of the church and fathers of the church and and popes even, 
uh, that it, it creates a kind of smoke screen mm-hmm. uh, at the very time when they are saying uh, that they are devout Catholics. Uh, she, she uses that as a, a regular phrase. We see the same thing with, with President Biden, of course, yeah. where both he and his uh, press secretary and others constantly use the term that he is a the, the phrase that they always use is that he is a devout Catholic who, who says the rosary and goes to mass weekly. Yeah. And I, I would encourage everyone, in fact, to go to uh, ncregister.com, the National Catholic Register, and read the publisher's note from our publisher and CEO of VWTN, Michael Warsaw, uh, that the title of it is A New Low for Joe on this very topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation on the other side of the break. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, my guest. Our topic is this uh, announcement today from San Francisco. Uh, Archbishop uh, Cordelione has uh, said that Nancy Pelosi should be barred from Holy Communion. More coming up. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We've been discussing Archbishop uh, Cordelion's uh, decision uh, to bar Nancy Pelosi from Holy Communion. It's I mean look this is a this is a, I, this she's a mother of five. She likes to point out that she knows the meaning of life, the value of children. Uh, she likes to say she's a devout uh, Catholic. Why doesn't somebody in the mainstream press simply say, "But are you a consistent Catholic?" <laughs> you know, I mean, this is it's, uh, that's a phrase that's never used to describe people, consistent or inconsistent. And I don't know why that's not done. Right. What? Well, nor is there really an effort to, to try to define what it means to be a devout Catholic. I mean, it, it's uh, <laughs> and that sounds yeah. harsh, but I mean, uh, yep, all of us are sinners. Yeah, all of us. Yeah. And uh, in, in this case, though, it's it. It goes back to a year ago uh, when you and I were talking very frequently uh, about the term Eucharistic coherence. Yeah, yeah. As the bishops were moving toward uh, their June meeting and all of the discussion that ensued over this need for Eucharistic coherence, uh, that the presidency of Joe Biden uh, as the second Catholic president had sparked. Uh, It was a an intense debate among the bishops, uh, but it also sparked, I thought, some real important discussions uh, about the Eucharist, about where the average Catholic is. The polling right. itself is alarming. Yeah. Um, but it was also a moment, I think, of reflection for a lot of bishops that um, the USCCB is not positioned to issue some sort of a blanket statement regarding that. We saw that. Canonically, it can't happen. So it, it falls right. again and again as it needs to, yep. to the pastoral authority of, of the ordinary of a diocese or archdiocese. That's right. And I think uh, that's where the discussion has started here. And I'm struck by the fact that uh, Archbishop Cordiglione, as his own notification says, reached out repeatedly and seems to have had conversations with the speaker uh, yes. about this. Yes, I saw an interview with him in which he did describe that she had been very respectful, that the conversations had been civil, and, uh, you know... It, and that's good. I mean, that's good uh, that they have civil conversations. It's it's disappointing, though, that uh, he is. But what what the mainstream press won't get is that he is driven to do this by virtue of the responsibilities of his office. 
Right. This is not simply a matter of uh, he uh, has personal opinions or he has political preferences. He, as a shepherd of God's people, has a responsibility to uh, repair damage, which has been uh, done by public scandal. And it's public scandal when uh, a person in the position of a, a Speaker of the House uh, says that 10 times she has said that she has supported abortion at the same, in the same sentence as saying that she's, she's a devout Catholic or something right. like that. So, I mean, you, what you've got is a scandal there. This is simply you can, that is an impossibility. You cannot be a devout, committed, consistent, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> right, Catholic, exactly. And be Pick a supporter. Yeah, and, and be a, a, a supporter, a public supporter uh, of abortion. Right. I go back to scandalous. I mean, the, yeah, the word that's itself right. is a stumbling block. That's right. That's right. Very good. Very good. And, I, I th- and again, we don't, I think in America generally, we have this, Heavy emphasis on free moral agency. Everybody's autonomous, and uh, you basically do what you want. If you even if you join a club, you kind of define the rules the way you want to until you get thrown out. And <laughs> in this case, you know we ought to respect the fact that the church does have. For, again, speaking here from the purely secular point of view, uh, the church has particular uh, teachings that uh, are incumbent upon you as a member. You are to accept those teachings. If you don't, then you're out. Right. And I, that's not the way I like to see it talked about, but the <laughs> secular press, at least they could talk about it that way. Well, and and, and we live in an age, uh, I, was, I can always still hear in my head the, the great speeches and, and homilies of uh, Pope Benedict XVI, who was the author as then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, and some of the most important documents relating to the, the role of uh, politicians, right. yeah. the Catholic politicians in life, he always used the word freedom. Yeah. And he would talk about we have freedom. And that's absolutely true here. You have the freedom to accept or to reject uh, the teachings of the church. But if you are rejecting them, that has consequences if you are a Catholic. Right, right. Uh, so we've got now about a half dozen bishops who have come out and made public statements in support of uh, uh, Bishop Archbishop Cordelion. Uh, do you expect many more? I do. Okay. Uh, we saw, for example, um, you and I talked about this, uh, the, the letter, the open letter from bishops, uh, many, many bishops from the United States, I think 70 plus, it's now well over 100 some bishops all over the world signed on to this, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals. Out of the same concern that we're seeing in many ways uh, on the part of Archbishop Cotoglione for Nancy Pelosi uh, for the German synodal way. That's right. That there is a pastoral imperative. There's a theological, but really it's a pastoral imperative for what they're seeing unfolding in Germany as a spiritual catastrophe potentially. And they felt compelled to speak out. So I would be surprised, really, if uh, we don't see a large number of bishops sort of weighing in, in part because so many of the faithful are going to ask them, do you agree with this? Yeah. And I suspect, too, that we'll have a number of bishops who weigh in, as we saw with the, the question about Eucharistic coherence, uh, who will say, no, I don't think that the, this was justified or that this is too extreme or however you want to describe it. Uh, and that's going to be their decision, and I think it's it's worth finding out where everyone stands. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, this uh, there'll be the there'll be the charge of quote weaponizing the <laughs> Eucharist yes. or politicizing the Eucharist, 
which is simply not not what this is about. And if you follow the pastoral intention of the archbishop here, it's very clear that uh, he has he's been engaged in an, an attempt, a long attempt, to pastorally persuade Speaker Pelosi. To well, he has a great uh, paragraph in this, and and he, in his yeah, uh, letter to his priests, he talks about uh, that. Uh, being, he knows he will be accused of weaponizing the Eucharist. And then he cites as his reasons some that you've already articulated, that respond to the demands of justice, moving the offending party to conversion, and then repairing the scandal cause. But he has a, a, a beautiful paragraph here. It says, Please know that I am not taking this decision lightly by any means. Indeed, this is the fruit of years of prayer, fasting, and consultation with a broad spectrum of church leaders whom I respect for their intelligence, wisdom, and pastoral sensitivity and it continues my efforts to invite the speaker down the path of conversion. But he adds, I have debated within my conscience for years what the right thing is to do, and although unpleasant, I'm at peace in my conscience with this decision. So here we are in an age in which uh, you're supposed to do everything according to your conscience. Uh, Do everything, (laughs) of course, except actually form it properly, apparently. But here we see somebody who, and I, I absolutely believe this, has wrestled with this, for a long time. And, and you can see that in the way that he, he has written his letter to his priests uh, and that it has gone on far too long, he says, and there's nothing more that can be done at right. this point That's to right. help the speaker understand the seriousness of the evil her advocacy for abortion is perpetrating and the scandal she is causing. Yeah, yeah he's end of the line. He, he, <laughs> right. He's done everything he can do and she, and she decided to publicly take a step even further away from the teaching of the church. Uh, her championing of, uh, the, the, again, uh, led, uh, coming up with federal legislation um, to uh, really incorporate uh, the central holding of Roe v. Wade uh, on a right to an abortion to, to make that a matter of federal legislation. That's, that is, you're no longer tolerating abortion at that point. Uh, you're actually promoting it. And so right. this is not this is not even a matter of saying, well, you know, she's not she's uh, she yeah she's pro-choice, but she doesn't do anything about it. She's just tolerating it. No, this is not the case. This is someone who is championing the expansion of abortion rights. Same thing with Joe Biden. Uh, at one time, he was leaning towards uh, a Catholic position on this, and it, at the longer his political career went on, the more he became committed to. Uh, this personally opposed, um, but publicly I can't impose my views on anybody. And then when he ran for president, what happened? Uh, he says he's, he's now, he doesn't even want to support the Hyde Amendment. He's looking to uh, e- expand abortion rights and, and expand funding for abortion rights. This is, you know, at some point, a, a good pastor has to say, look, you're eating the wrong fruit here, buddy. This is not, <laughs> you're not supposed to be taking that position. Well, that's right. And anyone uh, – now, you'll have some who would argue uh, speciously, I think, that, that the church somehow has never taught or has not always taught uh, that abortion is a grave moral evil. Even a passing familiarity with the teachings of the church – you can go all the way back to the Didache. I mean, you can go – It's there, yeah. It's there. It's all there. Yep. And so to argue that somehow uh, there's ambiguity in this – uh, is adding uh, mendacity 
uh, to pride and the support of what is unquestionably an intrinsic and grave moral evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any uh, speculation on how, uh, what, what kind of response uh, Catholics in the Senate and Democrat Catholics in the Senate and the House who support abortion, uh, where they're going to come out on this? Well, I would expect that we will see something along the lines of uh, what we saw last summer uh, in the middle of that heated discussion among the bishops on Eucharistic coherence. If you remember, you had a, a group of uh, pro-abortion Democrats who came out uh, essentially defying the bishops publicly and saying, well, I'm, I, this is what I believe. I'm going to communion, and I dare you to stop me. Yeah. So we'll see if, if something like that happens. It, it's worth noting that uh, in a poll that was released just a couple of days ago, I think by Catholic vote, a very strong majority of mass-attending Catholics believe that politicians who oppose church teaching should not present themselves for communion. I think it's mm-hmm. about 83 uh, percent that those politicians who oppose Catholic teachings but continue to do this create confusion and disunity and uh, that they should not present themselves for communion. So there is a, a really solid majority among Catholics, I think. The average Catholic gets it. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, sure, you can support abortion if you want, but there are consequences for that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and again, I would just, coming from this from a secular point of view, I think they should just have the idea, if, you, if you're going to, if you want to join the bowling league, you know, <laughs> you have to show up regularly, you have to wear the right shoes, uh, you, you can't have odd balls, you got to go ahead and play by the rules of the league, or you're out. Right. And that's what we don't see the secular press admiring about the Catholic Church here, that it's, some of its pastors anyways, are doing their best to be thoroughly consistent. Hold it there, Matthew will come back and continue the conversation. I'm Al Cresta. There are other topics to discuss, but I want to at least make one more point regarding this uh, issue of abortion. Uh, Again, if you've just joined us, my guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and I are discussing uh, the important story that uh, came to light today that uh, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelion from San Francisco went ahead and uh, finally, after after a long period of private discussion and an attempt to persuade, Finally uh, told Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi she should not present herself uh, for Holy Communion. She should not um, be admitted to Holy Communion. Uh, You know, I'm going back, as I was getting ready for today's conversation, I went back and I looked over uh, the 1984 speech of uh, Mario Cuomo in which he kind of gave a philosophical justification for the personally opposed but publicly neutral position on abortion. And I noticed in this, there's a very funny, there's a very funny section where he says, uh, he's talking about Catholics making prudential judgments. And he says, uh, you know, Catholic, Catholics have always given broad latitude uh, for judgments like this. And he's talking here about abortion, but he's also talking about in other areas of social policy. Let me read it. Let me just quote it. The latitude of just, this latitude of adjustment, 
excuse me, this latitude of judgment is not something new in the church, not a development that has arisen only with the abortion issue. Take, for example, the question of slavery. It has been argued that the failure to endorse a legal ban on abortions is equivalent to refusing to support the cause of abolition before the Civil War. This analogy has been enhanced by the bish- advanced by the bishops of my own state. But the truth of the matter is, few if any Catholic bishops spoke for abolition in the years before the Civil War. It wasn't, I believe, that the bishops endorsed the idea of some humans owning and exploiting other humans. Pope Gregory XVI in 1840 had condemned the slave trade. Instead, it was a practical political judgment that the bishops made. They weren't hypocrites. They were realists. And I would just stop it there and say, sure, and what do we think of them today? <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Uh, it, and shame on them, Yeah, I, I think, would be the way to put it. And, right. and I would – one other response to that would be, what would the response be uh, to arguing, well, I am personally opposed to slavery. Yeah. But it's the law of the land. It's the law of the land, you know, and, you know – I don't necessarily like it, but I guess some people, it's probably good they have a few of those slaves in the back. You know, they've got to take care of the grounds and things. Yeah, it's it's a lazy, sloppy, silly idea, especially when it comes to matters of human dignity like this. Truly despicable. One other uh, really interesting point to make um, in the framing that Archbishop Cordoglione has provided in this, and that is the the role of Pope Francis in his thinking. And that's an important that's aspect. That's true. He actually quotes at great length. From, he does. From, great lashings. Ahead. You got it in front of, of you there. Yeah. Um, I say that in part because uh, this whole idea that, that, as he raises himself, that he's going to be accused of weaponizing the Eucharist, uh, that somehow Pope Francis uh, says nothing about abortion, that Pope Francis doesn't want us to talk about abortion. That, that's been peddled now for eight years. Uh, going on actually nine years uh, in this pontificate, uh, that Pope Francis somehow shies away from the question of abortion and doesn't want to talk about it and doesn't want anyone else to talk about it when we should be out there worrying about uh, the environment and all of that. When you actually take the time, and I know you have, Al, to read everything that Pope Francis has said and written, you can see that he looks at abortion within that the wider context of the throwaway culture, as yeah. Archbishop Cordiglione talks about. Yep. And he notes, uh, he goes all the way back in his letter to the faithful. He quotes Pope Francis on multiple occasions uh, and notes, for example, in the earliest days of his pontificate, all the way back in September 2013, quote, in a frail human being, each one of us is invited to recognize the face of the Lord. Every child who, rather than being born, is condemned unjustly to being aborted, bears the face of Jesus Christ, bears the face of the Lord, who even before he was born and then just after birth experienced the world's rejection. That is, it's an eloquent, beautiful comment. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the type of thinking that we see throughout this pontificate. And this idea of the throwaway culture, the expendability of the human person, uh, the loss that we have of the generations, all of these things are there. And the Archbishop in, in San Francisco recognizes in Pope Francis what he calls the interconnectedness of all the threats to human dignity in the throwaway culture. And if there was ever 
a time of a throwaway culture. Uh, it is the very one, I think, that in so many of the bills that Nancy Pelosi, that Speaker Pelosi has supported, uh, I, I think that's almost the quintessential example yeah. of what Pope Francis is talking about. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. I did want to bring up this uh, in the um, Archdiocese of Madrid in Spain. Uh, they, it looks as though they have a, a holy year uh, in honor of St. Isidore the Farmer. <laughs> yes. I, I, this was not on my calendar, um, but I am curious to know why <laughs> they would kick off a holy year in honor of the 400th anniversary of the canonization of St. Isidore the Farmer. Well, I'm glad that you're, you're mentioning this because, A, it's good news on, on a day that uh, is somber news, but yeah. also in some ways good news in the sense of uh, here we have a real spiritual effort uh, to bring conversion. Right. Right. Uh, but St. Isidore the Farmer uh, is little known even today. I mean, he was uh, canonized about 400 years ago. He lived in the 12th century. He's often confused uh, with Isidore of Seville or Isidore of Sevilla, who's uh, a doctor of the church and one of the last of yeah. the Latin fathers. Isidore was exactly what his name would say. He was a farmer. And the thing that uh, has always been so fascinating is that his canonization by Pope Gregory the 15th in 1622 uh, was initially supposed to be just his. And then right at the last minute, because they had approvals for things, he was canonized with another couple saints, St. Francis Xavier, hmm. St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Teresa of Avila, and St. Philip Neri. Interesting. So you have four giants right. of the Catholic reform yeah, yeah. who are all contemporaries of each other, essentially. And then you have Isidore the farmer. And it's, it's – I always look back at this as this is sort of quintessentially Catholic <laughs> that we recognize the, the great missionary zeal of Francis, the powerhouse spiritually of Ignatius, a doctor, the doctor of the church in Teresa of Avila, one of the great mystics in the history of the church, St. Philip Neri, who is one of the great reformers in the history of the church. But then we also honor as well humility and labor and the dignity of work. And in the case of Isidore the farmer, what he was most renowned for was his prayer life. He <laughs> prayed without ceasing yeah. uh, to the point where the, the man he essentially worked for he was in, in the feudal system uh, heard that he would spend his days in prayer and he said, well, I'm paying him. So I'm going to catch him while he's praying. And so he showed up, and sure enough, he found Isidore praying. But the, the, all of the work that he was supposed to be doing was being done by angels. <laughs> That's great. So That's great. I appreciate the fact that um, the Archdiocese of Madrid has kicked off a holy year in his honor, the 400th anniversary of his of Really, he's the great patron saint of Madrid, yeah. uh, the anniversary. And it's going to go through, I think, until like May 15th of next year. And it's an opportunity for us to reflect on the, the beauty of the simplicity that we can have in our faith uh, and the importance of prayer, the importance of being a husband and a father. And the, the Cardinal Archbishop of Madrid described him as a husband and father who knew how to imbue dignity in human work and who knew how to contemplate the face of the Lord and how beautifully tied those are together. Very nice. Very good. Uh, glad to have that. I did not know anything about him. And now I'll be able to at least I have always think Isidore Seville is who I thought was the big Isidore. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you an, another question here. Uh, apparently, Pope Francis has made some uh, alteration in the rules for major superiors of religious orders, uh, something about allowing lay members to govern clerical religious orders. What is that about? Is that uh, a big deal? or? Uh, I've, I've noted that uh, there are quite a few people who see in this something of uh, importance. Um, Essentially, what Pope Francis is doing is making it possible for a layman uh, or a lay brother uh, to actually govern a religious order. And this comes on the heels of what we have seen in the decree that has uh, implemented the the Apostolic Constitution that has really uh, reformed the whole of the Roman Curia Mm -hmm. in which he is expanding the role of lay people. So I see this now as, as part of that vision. Now, what are the long-term consequences for this? Uh, we'll have to see. But essentially what he's saying is that, if that a non-clerical member of like an institute for a consecrated life or a clerical society of apostolic life, those that are what are called pontifical right, can be appointed uh, a major superior. Now, it's unusual uh, within the code of canon law. I'll leave it to canonists who are likely going to be arguing over this for some time. But essentially, you need to receive a special permission uh, in order to have this approved. But now we have this provision for that to happen. And I th- my personal take on this is that even if it's going to be a case-by-case basis, it opens the door for uh, some very potentially interesting changes uh, that might worry some, in part because major superiors are judged in the, the church law as ordinaries. In other words, mm. those who possess uh, ordinary executive power of governance. And in fact, they would need to have that uh, if they're going to govern, uh, say, a, a religious congregation or a community. And it's and assumed that, that is, that's given through ordination, the power, those powers of governance. Exactly. So there, there is a traditional understanding that the two go hand in hand. Now, uh, if there is this theological link to ordination in which you are bringing together uh, both the governing and pastoral aspects or functions of the church, and one is capable of wielding or exercising that governing power in one's right as, as a result of sacred order or holy orders, what does this do to that? And I think that's going to be one of those questions that canonists and theologians are going to, to wrangle over for a long time. But I think we're seeing... Pope Francis opening the door for certainly greater lay participation. And I think there may be some concerns on, on the part of um, theologians and canonists. What does this mean uh, mm-hmm. for those who would have oversight then over clerics, potentially even bishops, which from an administrative standpoint, we have already in many of the reforms that Pope Francis has implemented over the Roman Curia. Mm-hmm. But the a brother this would allow a lay brother to uh, lead one of these orders but he's That's already right. in some measure vowed or pledged or promised to that's that right. community. It's not like I walk in off the street as a layman. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I think that's that would be foreseen uh that uh within these communities you would have that in mind already. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would think too. Well, Matthew, thanks so much. Wonderful talking with you today. It's a privilege uh, to be with you. Yeah, we'll talk next week, Lord willing, huh? God willing. God bless. Matthew Bunsen with me. Uh, We'll have lots of uh, information for you in the Krista Guest Archives so you can follow up on these 
lots of stories regarding the uh, actions of Archbishop Cordelione. 